Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 21. As you turn there, again, we, I, it's the same outline as last week as we kick back off Sunday nights and uh, turned our attention to the last portion of our study of eschatology, and uh, that is our doctrine of heaven. And what I mean by heaven at this point now is, is not necessarily... Yeah, so lift a hand if you need the outline. Uh, what I mean by heaven is this final and forever heaven, uh, the, the place that God then will bring down after the very end of all things. So not, not, not the heaven as we would know it now if we were to die today and be ushered into the presence of God. That's not to say that the experience of our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord are experiencing any less of God's glory, but it will be different. That this final heaven that is described is of a different kind, and, and we even looked at that last week. So, Revelation chapter 21, as we get these outlines out. Anyone else? All right. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So again, last week we kicked this off by turning our attention to this first part. Chapter 21, going all the way through verse 5 of chapter 22, is the most complete description that we have of this final heavenly home. 
And again, I, I, I want to just make something clear, and, and I'm going to give just a moment here for some questions before we dive into the rest of this. Um, I just want to make this clear, what we are talking about in Revelation 21, this place is not there yet. The, that's why it's called a new heaven and a new earth. So, that, that's not to say that where God dwells, God's going to get rid of that heaven and replace it with a new one. It's not going to happen. But instead, what it means is there will be this creation of a new kind of existence. The one we know now will pass away. I think Second Peter describes it as being burned up. And, and so it will come to an end. We see this language, we'll see it again in the, in the text here. The former things have passed away. And, and we have God making the statement, Behold, I make all things new. And if you recall from last week, we noted the word new isn't just like an upgrade, nor is it just merely like chronological. Like today is a new day from yesterday. All right? So it's not like it's just the next thing that's new from today. Instead, new means something else. New. Unknown to us now. It is of a different kind and quality. This, by the way, is why the language, I think, of the rest of this chapter has such vivid images, but yet probably still falls short. Not probably, certainly falls short of what will be the fullness of the glory of that place. We really just don't have categories to describe it. I will go ahead and tell you this. Whatever you might think is the most magnificent thing on this earth, the most glorious sight, that which is of the greatest beauty and power and majesty, isn't even going to come close to what you will see here. I know it's hard to imagine, right? What you see now, and a lot of you probably been to a lot of great places, right? It's nothing. It's nothing. That God just did that just by speaking, right? So, not that it's not glorious. I'm just, I'm just saying, in comparison, we just don't have, we don't have any categories for it. So, so that is what is, that is what is coming. That's what we started looking at last week. And I just want to emphasize, though, our loved ones who have passed, they are in the full presence of God. They are knowing the fullness of their rest. They are enjoying the great glory of God's presence. It's just not quite this yet. So, before I move ahead, though, jump back into this outline as we have it, I want to see if there are any questions left over from last week or even a question based on what I just said. Yeah, Charlie. All right, Charlie's asked the question, from a layman's view, it seems like there are rare references to heaven and hell in the Old Testament. So, without ma- that really could be a whole other study, of course. Um, there are references to a few things. Um, and what you have to do is tease out the context. At times, there are references to like the place of the dead as just being the grave. 
But then there are Old Testament references to the place of God's judgment. You find those typically in the prophetic material. Uh, At the same time, we do find Old Testament references then to to, uh, the fulfilled promises of God and uh, the promises of the greater heaven to come. The most prominent examples would be the concluding chapters of Isaiah and significant chunks of Ezekiel, both of which go into great detail about what I think is being described here. In fact, I would say much of the ending of Isaiah uh, is somewhat fodder for John's words here. So I would say several chapters. I think what happens is in the Old Testament, we read language like Abraham's bosom. We use words like Sheol or the grave or even just death or the promised land using that language or the the holy city. Sometimes that language is used, taking it out of its earthly reference and making reference to, to, to heaven and or being banished from God's presence. But you are right to point out in terms of uh, clarity theologically that that becomes clearer when we get to the New Testament. Of course, that's the function of the New Testament uh, when it comes to the old. I mean, that's, that's, that's Paul saying, behold, these mysteries now have been made known. And it's not, I would say some of those mysteries are not just related to the crucifixion and resurrection, but kind of putting all these pieces together. So, that's a partial answer, but again, it could take the rest of the night to, to actually tease that out. Good question. Bill? I want to make sure I understood something I think you said last week. When we fast, we go to God's presence and not the presence. All right, so Bill has asked the question, um, when we pass away, we go into God's presence, but not to heaven. Is that what, what I was saying? No, I would not. If I put it like that, that was miscommunication on my part. What we're not going to is the heaven that it's described in Revelation 21. No, I think it's right and good to say, and, and I, I mean, I've preached a number of funerals in the last month and have more coming, where no, we will absolutely declare uh, the hope that those who die then go to heaven. Because remember from last week, what did I say? What's the number one defining quality about heaven? Is it where you're most happy? Is it where there are hills and flowers and you can eat ice cream and not get fat? No, what's the number one defining quality about heaven? Yeah, God, God's presence. Yes, yeah. And, and so, wherever, wherever God is in His fullness, that's heaven. So, so that, does that clarify? All right. Yeah, Don. All right, so Don's asking a question about verse 4, especially the phrase, there shall now be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Is that a way of saying that maybe those who are in heaven now have some remembrance of their life here on earth, and when this time comes, then all of that remembrance, you know, will be removed? You know, in, in other words, your question is, what is the meaning of that 
that reference. What's that getting at? Could you give me a few minutes? Because we'll get to that verse tonight. All right? So, good question. If I don't answer it, all right, throw a book at, not a Bible, but a hymn, throw something else, all right, at me, and I'll remember to answer that question. All right? But a good question. Yes, Chris. So the question is, the reference here to a new heaven, a new earth, does that mean there's going to be a new heaven uh, over and against the heaven as it is now? I think it's two different kinds of heaven. Uh, no, I think heaven is God's, God's abode now. It's, it's wherever He is. In a sense, you could, almost, you could almost see this right now. We have a heaven and an earth, right? We have an earth and we have the heavens above us. There will be a new version of that. At the same time, I would then suggest this is also an expansion on what is there now, all right? So it's, it's a yes and, it's a both and kind of answer to the question. It's not that, um, that, that, you know, where God is now that, you know, like extreme home makeover from how many years ago, right? God's not knocking that down and rebuilding a new one, okay? Now for the earth, yes, that's exactly what's happening. It is passing away. That's the language to me. It's very clear. End of chapter 20, 2 Peter, uh, this language is very clear. But what this then is, is a, is a fullness. I, I would say this is, you know, the, the, um, the, the final work, preparing then for us to enter in to the fullness of what He has for us. I, almost like taking Eden, restoring that, but infinitely greater. Does that answer the Question? Okay. All right. Oh, okay. One more. And then we'll... Uh-oh. What about Judgment Day? I thought that's when we would go to be judged whether we were going to heaven or not. Even those who have gone on the way before. So the question is, what about Judgment Day? Isn't that when the decision is finally rendered of our eternal location? All right, so maybe fill that out. I, I'm not exactly sure what I just said a few minutes ago. So, you mean, so how, what did I say that makes you think I have, uh, that I need to clarify? A little bit more. I usually take the grand approach of the Lord. Okay, yes. Now, but you're calling it, we're going to have Oh, okay, all right. I, I, okay, I see what you're saying. So when it comes to judgment... What is the nature of our relation? Here's how I would address that. When it comes to judgment, there's a distinction between our relationship to it as believers and then what is described as the final great white throne judgment in which all of the unbelieving dead are then cast out of God's presence. Um, I would say that since our names are written in the book of life, uh, our judgment has already taken place in Christ. So that judgment is complete. That judgment is done. So that's what then grants us entry into the fullness of God when we die. 
And, and, and again, we will call that heaven, recognizing the Bible uses the word heaven in a couple of different ways, and recognizing there's a final work God's going to do as described in Revelation 21. So that judgment has already been completed. We have already. Judgment that would be rendered unto us has already been satisfied. It's been satisfied in Christ. Now, the Bible does refer to us standing before the judgment seat of Christ and our works being evaluated, but that's of a different kind than what's stated here in Revelation. So, I, I, I would say, you know, in, in what we are talking about here is then this, this final declaration, which isn't so much then a final decision on us as well. We've already been made right with God. But the way the text then is presenting it, I think I see where this can sound confusing, it is then rendering this out and saying, and this is the final word. It's not like God could have changed that and those of us who are in heaven can somehow get kicked back to hell. All right, that decision has been made. When we die, we go into God's presence. Unbelievers who die, they are separated from God's presence right now. So there is an element of either judgment or reward that is issued at death. And then the final then promise of ultimate judgment and ultimate reward is rendered here at the very end of chapter 20. Is that maybe not quite as muddy? I know, it's, con- it's a confusing topic, no doubt. Uh, and especially, you know, you want to throw another um, monkey wrench into it. It's then discerning this whole issue of time and, you know, how our loved ones are experiencing time now and how all that changes when we get to this place and there's no more sun. I mean, this can really get deep and heady and philosophical and um, I, I, I would need more ice cream. I, I don't know any other word for it I, or chocolate, something, you know, something else just to kind of get me through it. So, good question. All right, Bob. Well, yeah, yeah, so Bobby's asked the question, so those um, who are believers who've died, who are in God's presence now, then they will be transferred into this new heaven. I would suggest it's, it's not so much that they're transferred to a new location, it's just that now the fullness of that reward is opened up and is then accessible. I would contend we would have access to the very throne of God still, like it doesn't change that, this is just an expansion upon that. Though, though you, are, you would be wise, though, to keep in mind, we, we are talking about something deeply mysterious and way above our pay grade in a lot of ways, right? Way, way above. We're, we're wrestling as best we can with the text as we have it. Uh, so I, I don't ever want to come across as saying this is, you know. Um, see, the, the good news about all this, um, because of how I think heaven is described, when we get there and I'd gotten something wrong, you're not going to tell me about it. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Um, and all the things you were wrong about, I'm not going to tell you either, all right? You know, in other words, that's just good news. That's because it's not going to be part of the deal, all right? So. All right, let's try and jump into some more of this outline here and uh, keep reflecting on, if you, keep, if you remember, we're talking about verses 1 through 8, this, the heaven's greatness is the first element of this description, what, what makes it, uh, what are the features of God's uh, heaven and, and why it is great. First, God's gracious gift. We look at this provision of the new heaven and new earth, and that was last week. Number two, and that is God's perfect presence. 
God's perfect presence. So so notice this language in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Which, by the way, so Chris may be getting to your question. I think that is the heaven as heaven is now, being then this is added to, you know, this the new heaven is added to this. All right? So coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that's rich biblical New Testament language, right? This language of bride being adorned for for the husband. So the new Jerusalem coming down. Notice that language, coming down out of heaven and coming from God. I think I mentioned this last week, but I I, I just find this so profound that, that when it comes to the way God gives out His final reward... It's still Him coming down to us. It's, it's, still, it's still this language of a gracious gift right, being extended down to us. Not, not that we are not raised up also. That's rich New Testament language. But I just find that to be so interesting. And then he, then he says this, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Now, this one verse, in many ways, could be a summation of the fulfillment of every single promise of God in the entire Bible. Because this is the fundamental problem, right? I know you may read that and you think, well, what, I mean, isn't God with us now? Well, sure. God, by definition, has to be everywhere all the time, right? That's His omnipresence. But the the, the language, though, that I would use to describe this is God's manifest holiness in its fullness with us right now. No. Because if it were, we'd be dead, right? No man shall see God and live. Something has to be done, even those of us who are redeemed, right? That this this is not a fitting uh, abode. We recognize there is a gap between me and God. Even as a believer, I do not live in the fullness of the manifest glory and holiness of God. I don't see Him visibly, right? I, 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 I don't have that access. I don't walk with Him in the cool of the day. There has only been one human couple that did that. And they lost that privilege, right? So the only humans that have ever been able to do that we're Adam and Eve. But ever since then, ever since they ate of the tree, and they died. They died spiritually. We know that would then bring grief and sorrow and death physically. But then we know what happens at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. They get kicked out of Eden. That's functionally being removed. Now there's at least one step of removal between them and the presence of God. 
And is not the entirety then of the Bible about God working out His promise to bring us back into fellowship with Him first. First, got to deal with the sin problem, with the holiness issue, bring us back into fellowship with Him, and then He will one day have to deal with the the fact that we're still in the flesh, that this world is cursed by sin, and, and this all needs to be remade. So there's still this barrier. That, that needs to be corrected. And, and there, there's, there's still this need for the fullness of a resurrected, glorified body. All of this is yet, is yet to be done. So there, there is a sense in which, no, we're not in the fullness of God's presence. We recognize we're not. Romans chapter 8 even says creation feels this and longs for the return of Christ. It groans for the return of Christ. So this is a profound promise. That language then, you know, which we're familiar with, behold the tabernacle, right? You're familiar with that word? It's the name of the church, all right? So you should say yes, okay? Yes, we are familiar. It is a reference then to the tent of God's dwelling, the place that he commanded it would be constructed. He gave it to the Israelites, the Hebrews who had, who had been rescued out of Egypt. They were the first ones through Moses to receive the blueprint. And this tabernacle then functioned as the place where God manifested His presence as they engaged in the sacrificial system that He laid out for them. So this becomes then a much bigger issue, much bigger image. Now the tabernacle of God is with men. Now there's no, there's no barrier. God will dwell with them. They shall be His people. He shall be His God. So there's, there's no more barrier then. This also is what makes heaven heaven. It's not just God's presence. It is now our unfettered access to that presence. There's no barrier anymore. Say, Pastor, what are we going to see when we get there? Like any of us have any idea. How could we? I don't know. I can just tell you it's infinitely greater than anything your eyes have beheld on this earth. Think of the most glorious sunset. Think of the most majestic mountaintop. Think of standing and seeing the majesty of the waves. Think of seeing that child that's been born, that newborn baby. Ah, that's, that's preschool art compared It's nothing compared to what you will see when the dwelling place of God is with men. It's a profound promise. And so so this is what makes heaven heaven. This is what we long for, that we would be then in the complete perfect presence of God. This, by the way, goes all the way back, Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, there's a partial fulfillment of this, of course, when Jesus comes. And, and, and that, that's, that's partly messianic, but it's not complete in its fullness. And, and then Ezekiel 37, 27, My dwelling place also with be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So again, we we know these promises are pointing to something that is yet to occur. All right, number three, 
Another reason why we're talking about this as heaven's greatness is because of God's compassionate care. So, Don, maybe getting, getting to your question. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Once again, a profound promise. Let's unpack it a little bit. That phrase when it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some will read into this, and this is going to sound strange for me to say because I'm so much a stickler for precision of language. Some will read into this and will say, does this mean initially there are tears in heaven? Eric Clapton probably shouldn't be our theologian here, all right? So, so all right, are, are there? Well, no, that's not what this means. I don't think that's what this means. When it says he will wipe away every tear, here's what I think is being described. I think this is a rich poetic statement that is saying that then that they've been ushered now into this place of God's forever glory. Now we've been ushered into this and anything that could smack of the former pain is now removed. Even if there is a, a tear remaining, right, from those who had made it through all of this and entered into all of this, even if there's one tear left lingering, God will wipe it away. It's not that when we get there. Some have come up with rather complicated explanations saying, well, when we, that, that maybe the tear is when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we realize we wasted our time and then God will wipe away our tears. Uh, some have said, you know, maybe there will be this understanding of the finality of things. It'll be one final remembrance that, that there are those who are then cast into, into utter darkness and, and, and forever condemnation. I, I, I don't know. I think that's reading quite a bit into the text. I, I think this is simply a way of saying that when we come into the fullness of what is God's promise here, that, that there, there will be the removal of, uh, of any, in other words, no longer will there be present anything that could bring any kind of pain and suffering to us. And the reason why this matters is because it's a new heaven and a new earth. And this, this would matter because it might address a question you'd bring up. If this is a new heaven and a new earth, and in the Garden of Eden, if Adam and Eve were able to disobey God and wreck the whole thing, can this thing be wrecked? No. This is of a different kind and different place. No. God's going to rem- remove all of that. And so, and so he gives some examples. So what would that be? There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Why is that the case? Because the former things have passed away. What he means by that is the entirety of the system as we know it now is gone. It's passed away. No, all that brings us pain and suffering and sorrow and death now will no longer exist. In whatever form you might think of it, right? From consequences of sin to the realities of living in a, in a body that's now under the curse of death and experiences the, 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 the decay to the point of death, right? All of, all of these things will be gone. There won't be disease Right? There, there, won't be, there won't be illnesses, there won't be cancer, there won't be Alzheimer's, there won't be these things. 
Uh, there, there, there won't be the, the, the sins that can so destroy people's lives. There, 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 won't be, there won't be lust and passions that have resulted in, in people pursuing things to such dangerous and deadly ends. All of this will be gone. Just allow yourself to think of the things that cause pain and sorrow and regret. Not too long, because I don't want you to wallow in it, right? And make yourself really sad. I say that to say, and then think that the day is coming when all that will be gone. It'll all be gone. Now, to get to Don's question, the question is, so when does this, what, what about those who are in heaven now? Our family, friends, brothers and sisters who've, who've gone on, it, it, does this apply to them? I, I would say, I, I am confident that those who are in heaven have absolutely no suffering, sorrow, pain, and therefore, now I may get in trouble for this, and I don't care, all right? Our loved ones who've gone on are not aware of us here. I know, I know, all right, for some, all right? but you don't want them to be. The last thing I want my mother to know is what life is like on this earth. Why would I want her to know that? I know we like to think, because we use this language, I don't know how many in this room would use this language, hopefully you've been better taught, but we talk about heaven and people in heaven looking down. I've talked about this before, that's super creepy. And not encouraging. I just got to, maybe for you it is, but to think, oh, my grandmother's looking down on me. There's a lot of circumstances I don't want to be looking at me. All right, all right, I don't want to go into it. I just mean, that's really weird. And, and nothing in the Bible ever suggests that. Now, somebody will inevitably bring up, well, pastor, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? All right, I would not draw your theology of heaven and hell on one parable. Number one, I do not think that parable is designed to give us clear-cut, explicit instruction on what people in one place or the other know. Now, so I, I do not think that people in heaven have regret. Um, now, now I, I might soften that and say, if they have any knowledge of their former life, God has created the circumstances in such a way that that brings no pain or sorrow or suffering to them. So I, I think all that has gone... As far as they are concerned, that no longer is, an, is, is a thing for them. Now, why this is describing it this way is because this is the end now and the finality of it for everyone. Everything related to sin, sorrow, suffering, and death is gone. It's gone to be remembered no more. So, so I, I don't think this is anything... Uh, that we would need to worry about, that we've got loved ones in heaven that are experiencing you know, some, some kind of grief or sorrow or regret, um, because I don't think so. Don, does that answer the question? Okay, all right. Fred? Well, yeah, yeah, this is, this is beyond the millennial kingdom, because this is also beyond the very end of chapter 20, which is the great white throne judgment. So, yeah, so this is beyond all of that. Um, that this is, again, this, this final, final place. All right? 
Again, I hope, I hope that you are encouraged. You know, to, to read and to study these things um, should be encouraging. Um, and, and, you know, especially for what, you know, where we find ourselves as a church, it, is, uh, it, it has been an unusual couple of months, and we've got an unusual however long to, to go. Um, we're, all, we're all aware that often death comes in bunches, right? Uh, in fact, certain generations would say it comes in threes. All right. Well, we've blown that out of the water. All right. Depends on what you set the boundaries of that for. Uh, I think we're going to get into multiples of threes, quite frankly. Um, it does come in bunches, but what we've been experiencing, I, I, will, I, I will say, it's just anecdotal, but I'm in my 25th year of full-time pastoral ministry. Uh, it is unique. I've never been through uh, a season quite like this. Uh, not even COVID, right? It's never been through a season quite like what we have been in and, and, and what is clearly on the horizon. So think, this is why the Bible has, has 500 explicit references to heaven and a thousand more implicit references. Because <laughs> this life can be really painful. And like I say in funerals, listen, it, it could be a baby, a child, a teenager, 20-something, 30-something, 50-something, or somebody 100 years old. I've never, never, been to a funeral that didn't have grief. And I've done funerals for people, 97, 98, 99, and people still cry at them. Even though it's 97 years of an amazing life. You don't want to see me at 97. I just got to be honest about it, all right? I don't think you want to know what this is going to be like 40, you know, nine years later. I don't think you want to know so, so even people who lived a full and God-fearing life, it still brings pain. So these words are encouraging to us. We should be encouraged by them. I, you can tell reading Paul's letters, Paul just about every 10 verses says something encouraging about heaven. Because he was always living on the verge of it, right? <laughs> he was living on the verge of it. And that's why we need to be reminded of it, especially when we live in a culture and experience that very often feels stable compared to the rest of human history, Right? Um, and, and so, be encouraged by heaven. Be encouraged by these truths. We may not understand all of it, but it's one of those circumstances where you can understand enough that it should be a deep and abiding blessing to the heart and soul and mind. These are God's unbreakable promises. God will do these things. It's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Whom he has foreknown, he foreordained, he called, he justified, he glorified. He uses it in the past tense. Glorified in the past tense. Because it's as good as done. So let's be encouraged this week by these promises of God. All right, next week we'll jump into the rest of it and you'll keep going. We'll keep trucking through. I'll add to this outline uh, for next week so you, won't, you are not obligated to hold on to this one for next Sunday. Father God, we do thank you again for the gathering of your church, blessed to have been together to think about these things, about your word and about the glory of heaven to come. And God, we do want to be encouraged, need to be encouraged by this. Grant us clarity and understanding. And where we do not fully understand, God, may we just then trust in your goodness and your faithfulness that have been with us all of our days and will then extend into all eternity 
We thank you for the week that lays out before us. We thank you then in your sovereignty. God, you are leading us into it. We trust our lives to you. Grant us wisdom that we might live these days faithfully, according to your word, and for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.